Hi, Karen here. Siriana and I are so excited for you to hear today's episode, but before we get started, we wanted to make a quick disclaimer that suicide is briefly mentioned in this episode. Here on Too Much Too Loud, we wish to refer to the act of suicide in future episodes as taking your own life, understanding the criminal and religious undertones that get associated with this act. We also, however, strive to meet our guests where they are in our conversations and understand that not everyone uses the same language as we do when speaking about these things. Please keep this in mind when listening to today's episode, and without further ado, here we go. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Too Much Too Loud with Karen and Siriana. Thank you everyone who tuned in to our introductory episode and our first full episode last week. Just as a reminder, all these episodes are actually going to be bi-weekly and we decided to release last week's episode early so you could get more of Too Much Too Loud content sooner and just get to know us better. So for today's episode, we have our first special guest, and this one is very fun for us because we've known him for years. Nick, do you want to introduce yourself? I would love to. Um, my name is Nick Utter, pronouns he, him, his, and I live in Madison, and that is where I met Karen and Siri. I met them in high school. Good times. Yeah, and so today we're going to be talking to our dear friend Nick about his work as a social worker, specifically being a white social worker and really diving in and learning about how you specifically, but also like your white coworkers and your f- friends who are also engaged in anti-racism work, navigate that. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you, Nick, about this because, you know, we grew up with Nick through high school and we were completely different people back then. And so it's just really fun to see how people grow. And so and I don't think we've ever really had a in-depth conversation with you about your work. So I think it'll be really fun to do that. Um, but before we do, let's all go around and do our podcast of joys for the day and for those who are just listening and haven't heard us do this before uh this is when we go around and just say one thing that brought us joy for the day so i can start it's still you know it's really early um when we're recording this but for me one of my pockets of joys is just that we're doing this episode together right now i don't think the three of us have been on like a call together in a long time so it's just really nice being able to see you both and talk today um, I will go. My pocket of joy was, well, yes, this episode, but also earlier this week, I caught up with a dear friend who I just love and respect and really look up to in so many ways and just had this amazing catch up for the first time in like maybe a year I saw her and it was just so wonderful. I left feeling just so joyful and happy, so... Nick, please share with us what your pocket of joy is. Yeah, my pocket of joy. I'm I'm bubbling right now because it is really exciting to be doing this with y'all. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll probably get into it. But yeah, two people who really have significantly impacted my my life and my journey to social work, whether they know it or not. But um, that so I'm excited about this just happening. But my pocket of joy would be I'm in a new relationship and a distance relationship. And so they my the person I'm dating they are coming to town this evening so I'm excited about that Ooh, exciting and you're so gleeful talking about it Nick I would love for you to 
tell us, because we also don't know, um, your journey about becoming a social worker and what made you want to do what you're doing and what work have you done? Yeah, I'm like really glad yeah, to cover this question just because I think anyone in social work should question why they're in social work, especially white people. Like, so I'm sure we'll get into that. But like my story and my reason for getting into social work initially was like a very simple, like funny little story I would tell people was I went into college wanting to be a zookeeper. I was a biology major and I was like, I'm going to work with animals. Like animals are cool. Let's just choose something fun. And very quickly realized that science was a lot of work and studying that I didn't want to do. I didn't have the focus or drive to study that hard despite loving science. And people just told me based on my personality and my character that they were like, you should think about teaching. You should think about social work. And I was like, I don't even know what social work is really. Like I have a very loose sense of that. And my chemistry professor was like, you should be a chemistry major. He like really liked me for some reason. I had no interest in chemistry. And he was like, what are you thinking about? And because people had mentioned social work to me, I just said social work. And he was like, I'll organize a meeting with you and one of the social work professors. You can double major in social work and chemistry. A combination heard by no one ever at any time. It sounds like a nightmare. And like, how would I graduate in any like good amount of time like just so silly but he set up that meeting little did he know was shooting me down the path of social work I met a really cool professor he became my advisor and I launched into social work but I think the subconscious background of that was and this is the reason when people are like why are you in social work like especially when I was on dating apps or just in the public I'm like you don't I don't think you're actually asking for the real answer because the real answer is when we were in high school together and beyond that there was someone in our school who committed suicide. And that like deeply impacted me to know that someone at our school had taken their own life. They were, I walked past him in the halls, but I didn't really know him at all. And that just was like, hit me like a wave. And then beyond that, all of a sudden there was like within a year, a trajectory of like four young men who all committed suicide that like deeply impacted me. And with each one, those people became closer and closer to me. And then it would follow me even after I'd already chosen social work in college. One of my best friends from growing up ended up committing suicide and so that's the story of how I got into social work I think on a deeper subconscious level I often felt othered or put down like for being small for like I'm a I'm a short king you're hearing the voice of like a five five year old man a five five height man and um also did not know but would figure out over time that I felt othered in other ways I think my mental health and how I was masking myself to people made me feel really othered. I have been all my life was like dealing with this subconscious or this loosely conscious concept of being queer and not understanding that. And I found a lot of connection in other people who I felt were on the margins, like people of color. And so I know my experiences are very different from them. I'm, I'm also a white male. So I think when I've analyzed deeper, those are the connections that I've made of how I feel united to wanting to help people that took me years to figure out. And so my career has been in mental health. I got my master's and I've worked in case management. I've worked in therapy and now I work in helping people get connected to mental health services. So that's a very long answer to your brief question. I loved how you laid out though, like how you've come to it and how, like you're saying, it's taken you a while to see the connections that might, you, you thought, you know, the different events in your life could seem to other people very separate 
but it just is really telling how much of how we grow up and the people around us and the actions of people around us really do affect us and so like you were saying although you don't you're still growing into being a social worker and why you're a social worker but it is really beautiful that you have already been able to see all the connections of events and people who have shaped you into who you are and who have gotten you to where you are right now as a social worker. Yeah, I'm a very, like, I think people, like, you all know me as a very external, like, bubbly person when I'm around the right people, but I'm also very internal. And I think social work education has pushed me into that. I think having the friends that I do have pushed me into that. And even therapy, like, if I'm not talking about in therapy, the the rumination that happens after therapy has helped me cultivate this mindset and yeah I think reflectivity is something that is avoided I think by a lot of social workers because they're doing so much work in their career that doing that outside is also exhausting no I super I mean we super appreciated that kind of in-depth because it really shows that it has been a journey and that you're right it's really important for people to question why they're going into social work do you have savioristic intentions and i'm sure we'll get to that in a little bit the first question that i've had when i was thinking about this episode that i've had wanted to chat with you about for a while is as a high schooler obviously we are all very different than when we were in high school but as a high schooler you were known as a republican i'm geeking right now (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure that I argued with you quite a bit and I'd really love for you to speak about what shifted over these years aside from time yeah I mean it's a it's a really great question and yeah I'm geeking because I just like it's funny to think about your past self sometimes like so I grew up in um in a family in a household that was really catholic really republican like their their political values were very much shaped around their faith, their faith beliefs. And it was just really one way for me. Um, My entire life, I was not exposed to a lot of other things. I grew up in a household of like, a lot of submission to parental values, or at least maybe I was a very submissive child to that, um, where I just believed what I was told. And I actually think this helped lend itself later in life to moving over to be more progressive and to listen to the experiences of people of color is I just like always believed what people told me. I was like, oh, my mom is my mom. She is right. And as I moved through high school, I, yeah, I didn't consider it a lot. I was just like, this is, this is what my family believes. Why would I not believe what my family believes? And then I started my social work education and I was learning things that I was never talked about a lot or I wasn't really considering when they were hitting me in high school about yeah, socioeconomic class and race and gender and all these things. And I was just like, the party, the, the places that are really focusing on this in addressing these issues that I deeply have a deep sense of empathy for was not happening in the Republican Party. And I don't know if I like, like probably a lot of people, I don't like love affiliating with a political party, right? But like, I believe in progressive values and ideals and they're often housed over on one side of the spectrum of politics. And I believe that the solution to a lot of social problems is not just progressive ideas, but like radical ideas. I don't think we move or think radically enough. And I mean, as a social worker, I think like, how could you not, right? Like we are doing the same things and we're helping people, but things have not changed significantly to address any social problem. And so I think, oh, we have to think way harder. 
and the people who are thinking about it at least are often people who are progressive. And so my political shift kind of like went with that, but it was really hard for me to let go. Like throughout all of college, even when I felt this way, it was really hard for me to let go. Trump definitely helped me let go. <laughs> but by then I was, I was moving. But uh, yeah, so it was a really hard shift to make, especially dealing with how that impacts your family life. But that is, that is the shift. It was through a lot of my social work education, through following y'all. Like even, I'm like so lucky that social media exists to have stayed connected with people like y'all from high school who are constantly sharing great content around race and social issues for me to have learned from. I often in life realize that I kind of live in this bubble on social media because I have people like y'all that I follow where I'm like, y'all didn't know about this thing or this thing. And I'm like, oh, it's because I've received it from these really amazing people from my life and my past. And so y'all are part of that as well. I'd love for you to speak to a little bit, if you feel comfortable, about when you made that shift and you've been kind of having this, I'm going to call it like awakening about race and injustice and your inherent privilege and all of those things. One thing that I have found, especially since 2020, when white people started talking about race, like I I say that white people realized that they were white, um, was that a lot of my personal relationships with white people became affected by them starting to speak about these things or have these realizations because I was like, we've been friends with we've been friends or we've had this relationship for X amount of years. Why are you just discovering this now? And again, that could be an entirely different podcast, but I know that the kind of reverse is happening for me. I'd love for you to just touch on how that happened, if that happened to you and if any of your relationships were affected over the years because you stopped becoming a Republican. And then obviously the 2016 election was bonkers and really divisive and then 2020 I mean with everything that went on in the insurrection so and especially with your family being Republican yeah I mean it's interesting because even when I was in that (laughs) Republican era or middle era where I was trying to figure it out and really didn't know what I was doing I always felt like I knew I was white and that that was different like I I know a lot of people later in life had like this awakening of like their whiteness and like a lot of people haven't at all, like really come to terms with the fact that they are white. And for me, it was just like really obvious. Um, (laughs) And because I I just believed my the friendships that I had with people like y'all, where y'all were maybe speaking about your experiences or even if you weren't speaking about directly, like through the musicals and plays we were in, I was like, ah, yes, I am a white person and those people are not and my life is different. And I just believed people. Because I knew, I don't know, I just had this inherent belief in empathy. But when it comes to like all those events and my shift away and my relationships to people and the question you're asking, I don't know. It was just like, I I have had had such a long relationship with those people that I think that helped me stay connected to them. I think having those connections to them and understanding the ideologies of the, the Republicans or the Christian people in my life allowed me to have more empathy and not let them go and to try to work harder to pull them along than just separating myself from them. Um, Like there are friends who I've separated myself from because it's like after having my quote unquote awakening, I'm like, 
this is the the relationship in general is not adding value to my life and what you are believing and doing and the conversations we have you're not moving and I don't have enough compassion to always move all those people around but my family and people I've known a long time I'm willing to put in the work and I know better the work that can be done to try to bring them along um and so yeah I don't know if that really covers your question no it absolutely does and it's really interesting you had said when you were talking about kind of the shift about the passiveness and like sub not passiveness well somewhat passive and like the submission that you were raised with and I was raised in a very similar house I absolutely rejected all of it all the time um of kind of like you speak and respect your elders and that's the same from the Indian community I was raised in you don't question it and how that actually helped you later on um, listen and take in these experiences you're hearing about of living as a person of color. If you feel comfortable, would you share a little bit about what it was like, though, just confronting that whiteness and privilege in the process of doing social work? work? And was that kind of hard sometimes? Like, if someone were to say to you, like, you are white and you, like your people enslaved my people or you know something very true but really hard to have to face as a reality yeah and, and having to confront my privilege or learning things through this journey I think I have taken it like you said because of that background and that submissiveness like I have taken it pretty well because I also kind of approached it from this academic perspective of like, it's true, and I can't change it. So why should I be so upset about my privilege? Like, why should I not just accept the reality of the situation and move forward and do something about it, instead of just resonating in your feelings? Like, I think I have feelings, and it is hard. And in confronting your privilege, you do feel like crap a lot of the times. And I think I've been able to reduce the amount of crap I feel because it's also like the more you learn the more you're like of course that's true like or of course that would be the case like now because I understand all these systemic things over time it feels less individually crappy because it's just like oh yeah like this is white supremacy it's everywhere why would it not also be here but when I was first doing it yeah I think it was tough but I think I had an easier time swallowing it than a lot of people because maybe this is my male privilege is I was not always taught or was not always socially uh, appropriate to engage and really perceive my own emotions. And so I'm like, oh, box up your emotions about this. What can you do? Like box up your emotions about your guilt about white supremacy. What can you do? And also from a social work lens, it's like, let your emotions drive you, but don't let them hold you in a space of inaction or guilt because I think guilt and shame are two of the worst things in the whole entire world. I think like they can just kill someone as a, as a, as a Christian person, as a queer person, like those things are horrible. And so I think knowing that so much of my experiences have shaped my ability to interact with race. And I think those are some of the things that came up um, to answer your question. So I would love to know, um, you know, you've touched on a little bit about you know, being aware of your privileges while being a social worker. And of course, there are limits to your privileges when it comes to working with certain demographics and things like that. So I, I just would love to hear about when you do reach a point in your work when there are limits to what you can do, how do you navigate that? And then also, if you could speak to 
like what you um how you also leverage your privileges to make change as well absolutely when when i was getting into social work deeper and i knew i became faced with the realities that not faced i just learned about the realities that like even though men are such a small population of the people that work in social work they have such a disproportionately higher ability to get promoted in the social work field and I was like whoa and I'm someone who likes to push I like to develop I like to lead and I'm like okay so I'm a white man in this field of predominantly women and we serve in Madison it's a little fuzzy because there's a lot of white people in Madison so we serve a lot of white people but we're trying to serve marginalized people that's like the goal of social work right and so if I'm gonna get promoted potentially if I want to if I push that way what does that mean being a white man on top trying to help people and working above people and yeah so those privileges I've already considered like inherently helping boost me and so how am I going to leverage them and where are the limits yeah so I've had to consider that and I've asked that question of people like should I really be doing this job like is the is the white man really the guy who should be doing this job and I think anyone can do this job. I think the people who do it well are considering exactly these questions that you just asked me, Karen, and all the questions that are being asked today. And so I'm trying to maybe think of examples of where this has come up, but I think really what I try to do a lot, and I do this from a pure perspective as well, working in mental health as a person with mental illness, which is, again, a whole other podcast on that, but um, I try to bring an outside lens to all meetings. I work in a job that's very systemic and it's impacts a large part of the mental health system. And it's also a job that a organization that's new and is developing. And so I get a lot of input in that, even as a low level worker. And I often am trying to bring the lens of and leverage my privilege. Like if I'm going to be in the room and I'm a chatty person and I am the white guy. And so people might inherently listen to my voice more like what what am I actually bringing up? Am I repeating what other people say? Am I just saying what matters to me? Or is what I'm voicing, how are we helping what we often call the consumer, like the client, the person you're working with? We often use the term consumer. Like, how am I voicing the consumer? And am I voicing, like, the consumer's voice in how they receive services just as a person individually of mental health? Or am I often saying, I mean, social workers nowadays are all like, we got to help the the underserved, the marginalized populations, right? Like, how are we doing that? And I'm like, I'm glad you're all thinking about it, but are you really thinking about it? Like, are you getting their voice in the room? And I often try to, to bring that up. A lot of the conversations of social work about like, how do we serve people better? It's like, we'll get people who represent them to do the jobs. And we'll put out a position, we'll try to hire a bilingual caseworker, or we hope that people of color will apply. And when they don't, we're like, shoot, they didn't apply. And it's like, okay, then what are we doing? And in my workplace, they have tried to do more work to try to be really about making changes to actually help people come in. But it takes a lot of change. It's like deconstructing what value do you put on education and having a degree? Like those are the kinds of things that we have to bring to the table to say like, what are the barriers that aren't allowing marginalized people to get these opportunities? And how do we tackle them? Instead of just saying, we hope a person of color will fall in our lap. So I try to bring those voices and I don't even always have the most creative ideas, but if you can put me in a room with someone, I can try to help work and 
at least try to say we need to do this even if I don't have the answers. Who can we turn to in the community who can help us figure out what the barriers are and how to tackle them? I remember as well, like, well, just going off of what you just said, another thing I'm sure you guys face as well is the fact that, like, and even if you get people who look more like or represent more of the demographics that you work with, then it's like, how do you sustain that? And how do you make it so that they want to actually stay within your um, your company if the company itself hasn't done anything to change perhaps how it is operating and, you know, making it a safe space for people of color to come and work there and not to feel burdened or like they have to do a lot of extra labor, which is, I'm sure, something that you face a lot. I think we actually had a conversation about this a few uh, months ago about just like if there's a certain population that is being served, but there's no social worker to serve them, or maybe there's one or two and they're constantly having to do this labor, you know, it's taking a toll on them. Like who does the work then? Like then then does the white person come in and do that work? Is it as effective that way? Like, I don't know if that's like, you know, a question or not, but just something that I'm sure you grapple with all the time. Absolutely. Because it's, because it's the, at least in Madison, the white people are already doing the work. So it's like, we could step in and do the work, but do we want to? And how do we get, we, like, at my job, it's like, you can't just have one bilingual case manager. Because we did for a while, and it didn't work out. I think the position was not exactly what they were looking for anyways. But the idea, the concept that I deal with is, you can't ask, yeah, one person to try to serve a population. And it's their own population. It's their community that they have a heart and soul for, and they want to work for but they also have a deeper emotional connection to that community. Like thinking of the Latina community, like the community in Madison itself is very together. And it's also a community that's based around a lot around familial connections. And so to put all that extra stress into your work beyond my white brain, that's like, I'm helping all these different people, but they are not my community necessarily, even in whiteness. And so to ask someone to serve their community, to hold it all on their own and to be working in completely different systems, like working in a in a bilingual system or a, a Spanish-speaking system where the services are different, like there's inherently more stress in that and asking one person to house that burden is a lot. Um, and that can apply for any system. It doesn't just have to be for the Latina community or the Spanish-speaking community. You could apply that to the Black community. You could apply that to wherever. The Hmong community in Madison is really big. And so yeah, we can't just ask people to do that. And yes, the white people should be helping, but how do we how do we support those people in doing that? And how do you retain people in jobs? Like you're saying, Karen's a great question. And also, how do we look at our workspace? Like pretty much all the workspaces in the United States, because it's where we are, are built on like white supremacists or white structures and systems of what work is and should look like and w- how you should conduct yourself there. And so I think about like, how do we deconstruct the workspace as well? If we're going to try to hire people of color and want them to stay here and enjoy and feel accepted in this workspace, how do we change it systemically? And unfortunately, I maybe have not been able to do quite the work I would like to do in that, um, in my positions, because I've been (laughs) in social work, you're housing a huge workload. And then it's like, how do I also do this? And that's why I think I push a little bit, at least in my current workspace to like want to move up because that might allow me the time and the ability to try to work on those things if no one else is. Okay, that leads me into my next question I really wanted to ask you, which is my favorite topic, white saviorism. 
I'm wondering just how you navigate white saviorism. Maybe you don't want to speak about your colleagues directly, but how um, your other friends who are also social workers navigate white saviorism. You know, you grew up Christian or Catholic specifically, Catholic missionaries, mission trips. All of our friends from high school used to go on those. I know for me personally, there was a lot of unlearning around saviorism that I had to learn. I'm sure it was a little bit easier for me, but I definitely had it ingrained for me from just having the privileges I have. And so I'd love for you at least to start start uh, with that question. And then I have some follow ups for sure, probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I went on a service trip in college to Honduras. So like I, I there was a lot of time that it took me to learn about mission and service work. And yeah, what what I was doing for me more than other people. Um, I also, you know, learned because I had a brother who was in the Peace Corps in Africa, and he came back with so many reflections on what it means to go to someplace and do service. You know, that was more extended stay. There's more like value in what he was doing. And then a lot of these little mission trips, but he still had a very critical lens on that. And I, even though we didn't have a ton of extended conversations around it, I learned from him and I think the idea of like, yeah, paying attention to white saviorism and am I paying attention to my own and are the people who work in the field around me paying attention to it? Um, I would say a lot of people are not. I don't think a lot of the conversations in like workshops and presentations around race that people are often getting is targeted specifically at white saviorism. It's more just like acknowledging like at least the basic stuff that a lot of people get more access to in Madison is about accepting whiteness it is about discrepancies but I think the topic of white saviorism doesn't come up enough I mean I think I think about it in two ways because for me my passion for social work lies so deeply in my own empathy and my own feelings of feeling down or marginalized or not fitting in that I'm I feel united to it not because I've had privilege and I'm the white person that should help people. It's just because I care. But I also have to be careful. Like, am I just leaning on that? Or is it, or am I, am I missing out on this concept of white saviorism that I grew up around, that I did go on mission trips, um, on like, on reservations. And like, we didn't even interact with the people that lived there. We interacted with the, the nice white nuns who were doing their long-term life of duty to those places. And so I, I think there have been times in my life where white saviorism was involved more than it currently is in my work. But I think the people around me, I don't know, I, I would love to ask everyone I interact with in social work, why, why are you in social work? Because I think that would help tap into this concept of white saviorism for them. I'm wondering, like, when you become a boss or, you know, you move up, as you just spoke about, how important do you think it is that these types of questions are asked in job interviews in workplaces where you're doing direct care. I mean, if I'm if I'm ever interviewing people, you bet your bottom dollar that I'll be actually asking them more in-depth questions about their understanding and concepts of race because I like I said like people in social work generally, at least in Madison, my experience in Madison is that people care about race and they want things to be better. And so they they have some knowledge, but how far does that knowledge go? And does the rubber really hit the road? Do I have I formulated what the questions I would ask are? No. But I think, yeah, I don't think it's unethical to ask those questions because it's hugely important to the work we do and how we serve people. So we should be asking. 
so I have white therapists and my whenever I've seen a white therapist um, in the last like three years, the white people are like, and I am white and you are not. How does this feel? And I'm like, well, obviously I'm seeing you. I'm okay with it, but I really appreciate at least they're acknowledging it. Um, do you have similar interactions when you're working with clients on like a longer term basis or is it something that like you don't do because of the exact type of work you do? In my current work is is pretty much all over the phone or email. So that acknowledgement or that being able to conceptualize it is different. I mean, I think people can make assumptions. I assume people, the second they heard my voice or heard me talking for a while, they're like, ah, yes, this is a short king white guy, you know? And also, I think people often think I'm pretty young. I get a lot of buddies on the phone. But anyways, I think I acknowledge and try to be present to it when I do know I'm having a conversation with a person of color who is saying, um, this is my experience as a person of color. Like I, I more, I more listen and affirm and say and let them know that the safe this the space that they're in right now is safe by saying, oh, I can absolutely believe that that would be your experience and like the reason you're feeling that way is valid because sometimes people will be a little bit in- careful when they're like, oh, my preference is not to work with a white person and but I could and it's there's nothing wrong with white people and I'm like no, that's okay. Your your experiences have validated to you that like, ideally, that is not what you want. And that sometimes those people can be harmful, you know, and so I, I do validate that I maybe don't bring my own identity into the room, because I assume they kind of assume knowing that they're talking to a social worker in Madison, that is probably a white guy, you know, but when I was working in therapy for a bit, I was often working with a lot of young uh, Latine boys and talking about race and their experiences in school was huge. And I was like, absolutely. Like, I am white. I did not have this experience in high school, but like, I completely believe that you feel like you are being discriminated against. And I think it's, it's good to name it at times. I think the ways, yeah, I think the ways in which people do it are different and can feel more weird, like with what you're experiencing with therapists at times. But when I was in therapy, I think in initial sessions, there would be a time where I would normally address it and say, even like working with women, be like, I'm a guy, I realize you're speaking to me, I do not have the experiences you have, but I hold what you, the experiences you bring to the table is true. And I, I will believe you and this is a safe space. Um, or I'm trying to create a safe space, I'm not perfect, you know? And so I would do that with race as well, often in the beginning of when I would work with people. Um, just going back to Siriana's question about white saviorism. So do you believe that being a white social worker inherently has white saviorism within it? This is a great question. I maybe have not considered this fully. So I'll open with that. I mean, I think to some extent, yes, because I am in this job and I do want to help people of color. So as I'm a white person with those hopes and intentions, am I being a white savior? Yeah, I guess I am. Um, And I'm saying it in a weird tone. Yes, I am. Like, it just is. And that's okay. Um, I mean, is it great? No. But do do should I be able to acknowledge that and accept that in order to do the work I do? Yes, because I still do think I have a place in the field. And I do think that the work I'm doing is valid. And I'm not only serving people of color, I'm also serving white people. And so, especially in Madison. And so, I don't know. I'm in the super white system, tons of white social workers in Madison, and I'm, yeah, going to continue to leverage my privilege 
even in my white savior way, to push to expand opportunities for people of color. Because it's just like, and marginalized people in general, because social work is not a well-paying field. You have to have this silly education to be able to do it. And so you're creating another barrier. And so, yeah, why, why do we make it so hard for people to want to help their own communities? And there's so, and like, there's so many other barriers beyond that. And so I just think like, if this field is what's worked for me, I've had the privilege to be able to get into this field to afford this education, you know, familial wealth and background and opportunity of being a white man. Yeah, let's work on changing the system and voicing ways to make reimbursement of people's work more valuable to make this field more valuable to people so that they can it can be in a mindset that like you can work your way out of lower socioeconomic class into social work if that's what you feel called to you know because I think some people look at social work and say why would I do that I'm not going to make any money controversial question in this scenario there would be enough social workers for all of the people that needed care who were of their race do you think that, not specifically you, that white social workers should still do direct care with clients um, of color if there are enough social workers? Uh, yeah. You got it. I hear you. Um, I mean, I think innately, like, no, unless someone said, I actually want to work with a white person, you know, like, I think there's opportunity for people to work with a white person and have healing experiences around that. Do I think that always needs to happen? That's super frequently the case. No, that's like one little scenario where it could come up. But yeah, I think, and it almost sounds like you're at, you're asking if I or if anyone would still work this job or should work this job. And I think, no, like if there's people to serve those populations and they felt well served by those populations, which they should, like because inherently those people would be doing good work. Um, if we're talking about a perfect world where all social workers are good, there's a lot of not good social workers in the world. Uh, news flash to the world. Um, but um, yeah, then totally, I would I would step away from serving those communities and I would work in communities that I think I would inherently serve well anyways I don't know where my career will take me but I could see myself going back into therapy one day and saying the population I really want to work with is like young young people like young adults or youth and white and like potentially queer potentially Christian Catholic background or in those communities like I see that is where I have the greatest capacity to work in from my own experiences, from what I care about, and from what I can work on in, in from a peer perspective. Like I think having a peer perspective of knowing that community and having my own experiences with mental illness as well, like I could serve the population that I know well. And so in that scenario where that happens, I do see my space being somewhere else and even in life. But as long as that isn't the case, and those people need help, and their best option is me, and they're comfortable with the option of me, I, I, I want to serve people, so I will. Yay, that's awesome, Nick. So I have one question that I've been grappling with for a long time now. So as someone who considers himself in some ways an abolitionist, like I'm really interested in abolition practices, and I think that the world is white, built on white supremacy and needs to be destroyed. <laughs> um one of the things that you know is constantly asked when it comes to people who are interested in abolition is 
well, then who would take care of public crises and, you know, there's no police in the world and what would happen? And one of the solutions that people offer is, well, then social workers would be involved more in public crises. I just would love to hear your take on that. And if you think that social workers should be involved in more um, instances like that rather than police officers. Great question. Um yeah, I mean, I there are there are better minds in the world who have created ideas and structures around how this stuff would work than I. Um, and so I would say, I, I agree, I'm all about, I'm with you on abolition and how do we take police and the criminal justice system out of how we, how we help our communities and how we serve our communities. Because obviously, to me, when I think about systems and structures around everything, it's like crime and these these things that we value as illegal or believe to be illegal come from somewhere and some brokenness in our system, in our society, whatever. And so I don't think the way we handle it is correctly. I don't think police response is right. Uh, that incarceration is right. And so do I think that social workers play a part in that system? I think so. I think so. I think even in that answer, so the simple answer is yes, but I think even in that answer, maybe my brain isn't even creative enough to expand fully beyond even just social work. Um, but I do think of like in Madison, we have developed or not developed. We're trying out a system that's been tried in other cities where we have social workers respond to 911 calls around mental health. It's like a very new, I'm not quite sure how it's been working so far. I think it's been about a year that it's been a pretty small unit doing that. I think that's great. I think I wonder, I, I, you know, when there's domestic violence situations, I'm like, what is a police officer doing there? What training do they have to help in that situation besides stopping a fight or being this presence of white supremacy and intimidation and perceived um, perceived power? Like, I don't know, just power systems within police interactions. Really, really disgusting to me. There's, I mean, I read a book called The End of Policing that talks about all different social issues and how how police respond to them, how it doesn't solve the issue, and what could be better options. And so I recommend that book to people. I think it was free online for a while during 2020. But um, so that's maybe a place I'd point people to as far as a resource and how we think about conceptualize abolition. But short answer, I'll stop talking, is yes, I think social workers could be involved in that. Well, the episode... I feel like it's getting a little long, so I'd love to wrap things up and just end with the question of how is this conversation leaving you all feeling? Yeah, I am feeling very grateful when I have conversations with white people that I grew up with and we have really honest discussions about race. It's really healing for me because someone who's told all their life, why do you make everything about race? And was constantly told that all throughout high school. And so these kind of conversations are really important. And I am just, yeah, so grateful that you were able to come on this episode today. I mean, I don't know. I'm just like, feel really lucky to be asked these questions, even when they're tough and to ramble and like, let my thoughts be heard. Like, I'm the white guy in the room and you all let me do a lot of talking today. Uh, but you asked phenomenal question. So I'm feeling, how am I feeling? I don't know. I'm feeling lucky. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling deeply reflective. I'm feeling like I have so much more to learn and to think about. And 
and that I know that that is an endless process, but I'm happy. I'm also feeling happy to have this conversation with y'all. Yeah, I'm feeling all the things that you are both talking about and just like feeling really in awe of how our friendship has grown over the years too. I mean, I've known Nick since freshman year, high school, soccer, you know, <laughs> like he was our soccer manager. Like I've known you for a while. And then we did plays and musicals as a, a trio. Like it's just been really cool seeing how, you know, we're adults now and we're, we're having these really cool conversations and we have cool jobs and we're able to, yeah, be critical about things in our past and have like incredible conversations, which makes me really happy. So thank you both for stimulating my mind this morning and feeding my mind this morning. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And thank you, Nick, for being on our episode today. Yeah, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure to rate our podcast on Apple. It helps so much. And also tap that bell icon so you get the notifications of when we release a new episode. Just a reminder, we are a bi-weekly podcast. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your existence and we know others do too. Until next time. Bye. Bye.